TheOAMNetwork.com. Power to the podcast. Welcome to the Bike Nerds Podcast, episode 36. This episode is brought to you by Audible.com. Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial to give you the opportunity to check out their service. I've continued listening to some Star Wars books over the last week or so, getting ready for a, a new novel to come out next week, Star Wars Catalyst. It's the, the prelude to the new Rogue One series, so I'm really excited about that. I'm trying to clear my plate of some of the stories that I haven't quite finished yet. So to download your free audiobook today, go to audibletrial.com slash OAM. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash OAM. Well, you might have noticed, but I'm flying solo today on today's intro. Uh, Sarah is actually camping right now. We tried to connect, but she just doesn't have enough signal to record the intro. So she's just going to leave it in my uh, capable hands. And uh, here we go. It won't be it won't be very long. You know, today uh, is uh, th- today's episode is uh, is a really great episode. We we got to sit down with uh, together. We were in Memphis in in the shared studio space uh, in Crosstown in Memphis while I was visiting a couple of weeks ago, and we did a couple of interviews while I was there. And this is the first one, and it's Mr. Paul Young, and Paul is the director of housing and community development for the city of Memphis. And we wanted to sort of stay on this theme, right? We 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 talked with Carolyn Shapansky a couple of weeks ago about affordable housing, the role that you know, housing and planning sort of play into transportation systems. And Paul uh, and the city of Memphis are about to embark on a brand new comprehensive plan. And I wanted to ask some, you know, some more questions about the ways in which planning and these sort of big projects and long-term ideas can have uh, big impacts for bicycling advocates and big ad- big impacts for those using bicycles uh, in their communities to make them bigger. And in what ways should people engage in those kinds of processes? And, you know, we only sat down with Paul for, you know, about 45 minutes to 50 minutes. Uh, and we did not answer all of the questions. We did not solve all, all the world's problems. But I think it's a good, it's another good starting point. It's another good perspective from a person who is not necessarily, you know, sort of a quote unquote bike nerd in every shape, in every sense of the word but is a person that is uh, working in that space and uh, doing a lot of really great things. And so we had a really great conversation with Paul in the studio together. I hope everybody enjoys it. Let's hit it. Paul, welcome to the podcast studio. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Glad to be here. Uh, I'm glad to be here too. Kyle, I'm so happy you're here, Paul. I'm happy you're here as well. I'm happy just to be talking to people in person. <laughs> yeah, so Sarah and I uh, typically record the podcast over Skype, like remotely. Wow. Yeah. Um, so you actually look at each other, at least. No. No. <laughs> we actually don't use the video aspect of Skype. It, that oh. was Kyle's decision. I find it immensely uncomfortable. It's, yeah. it's uncomfortable, but it there's less chance of the signal going out, going out yeah. when we just use the audio. The, yeah. That makes a difference, like on an audio podcast, like putting it out, yeah. not having like... The weirdest part is our guests usually have the video... So they can't see us, but we can see them. <laughs> I, just minimi- I just minimize it so I don't have to watch them. Oh, I watch them. 
<laughs> so so now how long I'm have the- y'all, you, you guys have the, had this podcast? So we released our first episode on February the 28th of this year. Great. Um, and we're more over 30. Yeah, more than 30 episodes yeah. in. So we do like a weekly nice. a weekly release. Congrats. Um, I think I've seen thanks. it on Facebook. Uh, I hadn't necessarily gotten a chance to listen, but I've definitely seen the promos. So well, cool. That means we're doing something right. <laughs> yeah. You at least know we exist. It means our paid advertisements <laughs> are working. <laughs> All right. Um, yeah, but it's it's great. So Sarah and I were actually in Vancouver a couple of weeks ago for a conference, and we got to record together then. But this this still sort of feels like more more cozy than yeah, our than the our studio is home yeah this is where we started so this is where we did our first probably this 10 great space episodes great yeah space. yeah it's super cool right you know it's here in crosstown like tons of energy around that but yeah. then also just you know it's it's really super cozy there's, there's a big history like this whole section of um shops right here is all sort of has, has a long history of like recording studios okay. i didn't realize that yeah i so i used to play in a band that practiced in the next door space okay. um, i actually recorded a record in that next door space um and then there's another there's an active recording studio on, on the end high low recording okay. down on the end right now have to hear some of your recording <laughs> maybe maybe not <laughs> <laughs> depends on what kind of music you like I like it all. <laughs> Ooh, I, I could test that theory. <laughs> Definitely. Um, but it's, it's really great to have you, Paul. And I'm, I'm super excited that you accepted the invitation. You know, the podcast is called the Bike Nerds Podcast. Right. Uh, and Sarah and I sort of initially, I think, started this thinking that we would be interviewing people that are working on bicycling across the country. And that's that's been true, I think. Um, but it's also grown a bit, I think. It's sort of evolved yes. also to not just thinking and talking about bicycling, but talking with people that are sort of working in subject areas that are tangential or adjacent right. to bicycling and, you know, what what those kinds of impacts actually are. And Sarah and I talk a lot with individuals who are engaged in bike advocacy or, you know, are working in cities. And what what we're finding is that there's a lot of – there's a lot of work that people working in bicycling are doing that isn't directly about bike advocacy, right? right? And these issues come up in cities all across the country, right? It's not just about bicycle lanes. It's about bicycle lanes and gentrification or bicycle lanes and affordable housing, bicycle lanes and income equality. And exactly. so it's all it's all tied in together. And so when we were sort of thinking and brainstorming about you know, who should we have in the studio? We got, we've got like a two hour block. I'm going to be in town. Who should we get in there? Uh, you were like top of the list. Well, I'm privileged, man. I'm, <laughs> I'm excited to be here. Um, it's a great opportunity. Obviously, I work in housing and community development, but when I think about community development, it's all those things that you talked about. You can't do one without, without the other. And what was, um, one thing that comes to mind, and we'll probably get into all of this, but, um, I, previously worked as the director of sustainability for the city and mm-hmm. county and uh, we had an initiative called the green print which hopefully many of your listeners have heard about where we're looking to connect greenways and trails throughout the region and we had a series of community meetings and i was at one meeting in uh, riverview kansas uh, neighborhood just on the southern side of memphis and um, it happened to be election day um, so it was last year we were doing county primaries and um 
one of the residents, not last year, maybe two two or three years ago, but anyway, one of the residents, um, there were about 40 people there, and one of the residents was standing in the back, and I started off giving my spiel about how we wanted to uh, connect the neighborhood with greenways and trails and create bike lanes and all of that good stuff in the neighborhood, and she stopped me and said, um, you know we don't want that over here. Um, and I was like, what do you mean? She was like, that's not for us. That's for white people. They, we don't need that in our community. Uh, we need somebody to come over here and clean up this blighted property mm-hmm. that's next door to my house. Um, and she went on to talk about the blighted property next door to her house. And so um, we then got into the dialogue about how um, this this initiative was really connected to transportation and creating opportunities for people to get to and from work, uh, creating vibrancy in the neighborhood, putting more people on, to, on the streets, um, and talking about how um, different uh, home buyers wanted to have these types of amenities in their community. And we started talking about economic development implications. And then as we got deeper into the discussion, she said, well, you should have started off talking about that stuff as opposed to the <laughs> but, but I say that to say um, when we start talking about things as simple as a bike lane, uh, it's important that we put it in context to how it's going to connect to all the other aspects of our community that really do speak to the day-to-day needs that people have. And it's sometimes difficult to do it when you're, when you're just thinking about a bike by mm-hmm. itself. Right. But when you think about the whole system of how we improve our neighborhoods and our communities, it's an important piece of connectivity. Yeah. I've talked on the podcast before um, about my time working in Memphis, particularly about, you know, the work around engaging people in the community, building support for bike infrastructure. And, you know, I've sort of told stories that sort of echo that sentiment that you go to me and talk about a bicycle lane, but you're actually dealing with problems of getting the trash picked up on time, uh, flooding issues, uh, these other kinds of issues that pop up and, you know, to be an effective leader for bicycling, uh, you have to learn to sort of deal with those sort of externalities that exist, right? And so if you you go back to City Hall the next day and you find out why the trash wasn't picked up and you find that person and take care of it. And the next time you go back to the neighborhood, they're saying, hey, man, hey, Kyle, thanks for taking care of that trash. This bike thing might actually work out, right? You know, it's it's about sort of that that collective collective analysis. And, And people, I think, on the podcast have asked, you know, sort of like, why, why do that? Or, you know, understand, you know, that's not, that wasn't, that's not your job to do that. Or, you know, sort of have this, this sort of very siloed sort of approach to, to sort of work. And I think, you know, our argument has been, you can't, you can't be effective at what you're doing, regardless of what it is in city government, without understanding sort of the more holistic approach to thinking about, you know, delivering services to people. Right. And, and, you know, for, for me, particularly when I was in the sustainability role, there are so many functions of government that are about the day-to-day needs of the community. Pick up the trash, you know, do the things that that people want, clean up the streets, sweep the roads, things like that. But we also have to be forward-thinking. And a lot of the work that happens in the bicycle advocacy work is forward-thinking. And so people Mm -hmm. aren't necessarily thinking about a bike lane because that's not – 
what they connect to their mm-hmm. immediate need. Mm-hmm. Their immediate need is we need to get trash off the street or we need to clean this blighted property next door to me or um, get the um, drug dealers off the corner. Like those are the things that we hear when we go into inner city neighborhoods. And so we have to make sure that we connect what we're talking about to some of those immediate needs that they see on a day-to-day basis. Yeah. Let's can we back up just a little bit here? Sorry, we'll talk, I'll just dive. No, no, no. I want to talk about uh, your bicycling history, Paul. <laughs> I mean, so I've, I mean, we've known each other for quite some time. Yeah. I think we you started at sustainability about the same time I started. I did two thousand eleven? Uh, yes, yeah, so all around the same time. Yeah. So I mean, I would not say Paul Young is a bicyclist. You would probably right. Be right. I mean, I think. Would, would I, you call yourself a? I would not. I, <laughs> there you go. I, I I would do it. I do it from time to time for recreation, uh, but no, I'm not a definitely not a serious cyclist. Yeah, but, but let's talk about cycling as a child. Okay. Yeah. I mean, what's uh? What's your what's your bicycling memory? What's what's fond about bicycling? Uh, I remember there were about eight of us in my neighborhood that used to ride bikes literally. Every day, and we would be all over uh, the Oak Haven Parkway Village area yeah. of the city. We used to ride down in the uh, concrete. I don't even know what you call them, the things where the water drain, the drainage ditches. Oh, yeah. Uh, we used to ride bikes through there, um, rode up and down Sweeney Road before it was actually opened up. <laughs> like a road. Yeah. <laughs> and we had the, our own little speedway where we used to race and do all kinds of things. So, yeah, I mean, back in the day, definitely was uh, serious with the bicycle. Yeah. But as I've gotten older, I um, have kind of fell off. Yeah, I you know I've also ridden in those uh, viaducts. You you can get some crazy places you in this can. city. You can. You just I've not ridden in a viaduct. You should try it. It's fun. <laughs> There's some places that maybe people don't want you to go that are accessible via those viaducts. Yeah, yeah I probably shouldn't be encouraging that. No, yeah. no, no. As a city <laughs> official, so no, do not do that. We're gonna t- yeah. we, we can talk Paul off. Says no. We can talk off the air about some of those places <laughs> yes, yes. that I might may have or may not have been <laughs> at some point in my history. Right. Um, so, do you have a question? I do, but you do go. It. No, no. Yeah. Oh, I was just going to ask. So you're a Memphian. Oh, yeah. Born and raised in Memphis. Grew up over in uh, Oak Haven area. Graduated from East High School. So, What were you Memphis doing before you were a city official? I've worked in government for um, the past six or seven years. Before that, I worked with a development firm, and we were very closely linked to government. Mm-hmm. Uh, so... My whole professional career, I have been in. I've worked in the private sector and for a nonprofit in New York. I stayed there for about a year, um, and then before that, I was in government. So I've always been in and around government, right. working with different gro- government programs and initiatives. So this is uh, kind of in my DNA now. After <laughs> the past, I guess, thirteen years. Yeah. Wow. What What, what were you doing in New York? I worked for a, a nonprofit called LISC, Local Initiative Support Corporation, yeah. and they do uh, funding for community development corporations across the country. They oh, wow. What a sites. great service. <clears throat> yeah, it was, a, it was a great job. I just wanted to get back to the South. I needed my Southern comfort. <laughs> <laughs> what did you uh, miss the most about the South when you were in New York? Space. <laughs> Space. <laughs> Space. I, I moved from Memphis and I was living on the river. Uh, in a nice apartment yeah. and wasn't making a whole lot of money, but I was able to afford that. And then went to New York and I was living with my college roommate and his sister in a um, 
in a box and uh, Bushwick. Yeah. So <laughs> it was a drastic <laughs> difference in the quality of life. You just needed some sunlight, I think. Yeah, yeah. yeah. All D of and, yeah, vitamin D is always important. Some greenery, um, all of that I needed. <laughs> and I wasn't getting a lot of it there. <laughs> uh, so, Paul, since I've left Memphis, I've been reading and keeping up with uh, your work and reading the newspapers and online blogs. And I've, I'm really intrigued by the new comprehensive planning work that uh, yep. that your office is undertaking and I, I just wondered if you, if we could talk a little bit about that Definitely. and then maybe just talk a little bit about what its implications are in terms of understanding the ways in which bicycling works within a, you know, pretty complex ecosystem yeah, of a city. So it's been, um, the last comprehensive plan we had as a city was 1981. Um, <laughs> my, my colleague, John Zena, he, he gives the example that, you know, the median age, uh, in Memphis is uh, 33. And so mo- more than half of the city wasn't alive the last yeah. time we did a comprehensive plan right. for the city. Um, so why was that the last time there was a comprehensive plan done? Like There are numerous reasons why. I mean, there have been uh, neighborhood scale plans right. that have been done in the interim. Um, there's a uh, political will mm-hmm. um, because comprehensive plans can be very political. They mm-hmm. um, What makes them political? Because the plan essentially guides development for the time period mm-hmm. that the plan is active. And when you adopt a plan, you are essentially saying that as government, these are the types of development that we will approve for this area. And in order to um, uh, um, go away from that plan, right. you have to have a whole other set of approvals. And when those approvals come, then the uh, community can rally behind the plan and say, you said you were going to do this, but you're doing something different. And so you can open yourself up to um, – uh, a lot of political dispute. Mm-hmm. Um, so not to say that that's the only reason it hadn't happened, but I'm confident that that was probably a consideration right, a in the past. Yeah. Um, but for various reasons, it hadn't been done. Mm-hmm. And this is an opportunity for us as a city and as a community to really chart where we want to be for the next 100 years. That's how we think of this. We're coming up on our um, bicentennial for the city of Memphis uh, in 2019, uh, this plan will be completed in roughly 2018. Um, and so what we see ourselves as doing, we as a city, is charting the path for what we want this city to be over the next 100 years. Um, and you mentioned that we are involved housing and community development, but we aren't necessarily the spearheading agency. We're partnered with the Division of Planning and Development. There will be an Office of Comprehensive Planning that is formed, and it will be That'll actually, be a new office for the city of Memphis, office, right? Yes, a new Office of Comprehensive Planning that will be formed, and um, this office will operate under the Division of Planning and Development. And um, we expect to have a lot of great things happening over the next two years. There will be a host of opportunities for residents to give input, whether it's in person, via the Internet, uh, five-minute conversations right. outside of um, grocery stores or at transit terminals. All of those things will culminate into this broader comprehensive plan that will chart the course for this community uh, moving forward. And obviously bicycles uh, are an integral part of the transportation network. Uh, we've done a lot of planning around the green print uh, a few years ago, 
And with that planning, um, it's not going to be for naught. All mm-hmm. of that will serve as the foundation for the next plan. Um, so all of the plans that we've done in the past, like Aerotropolis, the mm-hmm. Green Print, uh, the Metropolitan Regional uh, Economic Development Plan, all of those things will be foundational plans for uh, to inform what happens with this comprehensive plan moving forward. Cool. I, you know, I th- I think a lot about my time working in Memphis, um, just, just sort of as I reflect and, you know, try to provide other cities advice, you know, based on my experiences. And one of the things I think about often is that, you know, in serving as the role as sort of a public liaison, you know, put into public situations, answering questions, leading developments, particularly for biking and walking projects, but, you know, all these other things that I sort of mentioned earlier, you know, one of the things that I look back on and think about, you know, what what could we have done better? I, I find that a lot of those items sort of fall in this realm of, well, the city doesn't have a policy about that, right? right? Like, what, what are we doing to ensure uh, that people of color in neighborhoods where bicycle trails are going in have opportunities to start new small businesses and gain from those economic right. advantages that happen? It's like, well, that's a great question. I don't know. I don't think we have anybody working on that. Or, or what are we going to do to protect you know uh, people that are living in this community uh, from rent hikes or losing their homes as a part of displacement? It's like, oh, you know, I don't know. I don't think we have like a, a plan in place that you know sort of addresses residential and economic gentrification right. as a part of this. Right. So, to me, as I think about this comprehensive planning tool, I think about it in a very real way that it could actually become a great mechanism for local bike advocates to be involved in the process and then have really good answers to those problems. Absolutely. You're, you're a hundred percent on point. Um, that, that is part of the reason that we see so much that I see so much value in this process because while the comprehensive plan is going to really chart the path for growth and it'll lay out all of its different, um, growth scenarios and how we want to develop, it's also, equally about people, place, and opportunity. Like where, uh, how do we connect the social services and the safety net for this community with uh, the needs in those neighborhoods in which they operate? How do we uh, connect the conversations about bike advocacy uh, with the people in the neighborhood in a way that they see all of the intersections of how those things connect? Because one of the things that I found in government, probably the most important thing I found in government is uh, that it's all connected. Uh, that mm-hmm. was a, my favorite uh, TV show is The Wire. And there was one of the episodes <laughs> of The Wire that was kind of the title of it um, was It's All Connected. And what they were saying is that all of these issues, whether it's education, poverty, health, um, transportation, all of these things are so interrelated. You can't pull one out uh, without addressing the other. And so this comprehensive plan is an opportunity for us to have a thoughtful process for how we uh, address those things in a meaningful way. And, I, and my hope is that more advocates will be born as a result of this mm-hmm. process. More leaders will be grown as a result of this process. So the agency that I manage is Housing and Community Development. We invest with organizations. So um, if there's a development that's going to take place in a neighborhood and you want uh, investment from the city, then we need a vessel 
to invest with. It's very mm-hmm. rare that we're going to come in and build a grocery store, right? Uh, a need in many of our communities. But if there's a community development corporation in that community that is able to go out and work and pool the other sources of funding and we can come in and be a, a gap filler, then that's the way that we'll be able to help improve this community. So out of this comp planning process, we want to see more leaders, more organizations strengthened, and um, all of that is going to be um, a great outcome from this process. What's like, how do you describe comprehensive planning to someone that has no idea what planning is and has no idea that the government thinks about that kind of things or should or could? Um, I mean, I think I learned just a ton right now listening to y'all talk about comprehensive planning. And I think I know more just by spending too much time with Kyle. So like, what's the messaging look like to like the general, like Memphian? Well, I think the messaging, we're still trying to figure that out, right. <laughs> how to message it, because it's so much. And what we want want to do is make sure that as much as we talk about land use and growth, mm-hmm. that we also uh, talk about those opportunities that it creates to create these intersections. But we also want to make sure that we uh, tamper expectations. We don't want people to feel like this is going to be the silver bullet that's going to address all the ills of this community. We also want to make sure that people understand that because we're doing a comprehensive plan, it doesn't mean that the city's getting ready to come into your community and everything is about to change right. today. That it's a plan. That it's a plan that has a series of actors. The city is obviously a significant actor, but you as an individual are an actor in this plan. We need you uh, to help bring about this change that we want to see. And so when you say, how do we explain it in simple terms? What we want to to get across to the community is that this is our opportunity collectively to chart who we want to be. Um, I think that's the simple way of saying it. How do we collectively come together and define who we want to be and chart a path to get there? I've been thinking about... um so what are the what are the key points to success right at the end of the day from a from a very high level and I think I think I came up with three. You three, came up three with is three. A good so number. are you saying key points of success for a city? Yeah, for for a city sort of thinking about a comprehensive plan. And I wouldn't even say this is like a comprehensive plan it totally. It has to do with any kind of plan that you're actually working on or a project process. Wow. Uh, well, it's, it's not, it's not, a, it's not rocket science. I can't wait for you right? to share, to Kyle. No, 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 no. It's, it's not, it's not. <laughs> but I think number one, you have to have an authentic and robust engagement process. What does that look like? I'm well, going to now well, pick I'm gonna, apart I'm gonna, your I'm plan. Gonna, I'm going to ask Paul in a second. Okay. All right, all right. <laughs> it, has, it has to be a robust and authentic engagement process where people actually have the opportunity to come to the table and talk about what they what they need, what they think about the future of the city to be. Yep. Number two, the the finished plan actually has to reflect what the community said in the, in the engagement process. Right mm-hmm. that that process can't be a checklist as a part of you know doing the process, and then city officials or planners you know sort right. of make up what's going on. There ha- there has to be the key correlations between what people say they want and desire and the plan. And the third thing is you've got to have a mechanism for implementation and follow through, right? And so if you create a really great plan, you've engaged people in your community and their desires and needs and wants are reflected in that plan. You can't then start deviating from that plan. You have to have a, you have to have the ability and the controls to actually implement it or else your, you know, your authentic engagement process wasn't actually that, that authentic. So, so I'm curious to know, you know, as you sort of think about that, 
how do you how do you go about doing that because it's 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 a it's big right i mean we're talking Huge. like a city of you know six hundred and fifty thousand people right. i think about some of the other regional there's there's regional planning that happens right, right. you know the, yeah. the local mpo mm-hmm. the green print that you mentioned right you know those were big undertakings but Huge. but they by no means touched touched as many people as you know potentially this plan needs to right Right. I I think you're spot on. You would think me and you went to the same playing school. <laughs> Maybe we did. But 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 you're absolutely right. Those are definitely key factors and um the the way I like to describe it is the engagement is the plan. I mean the engagement mm-hmm. that we mm-hmm. undertake for this plan is what's going to make this a success or a failure. Um we want to be able to touch as many people as possible. Uh, with the plan through all types of mechanisms right now. People use social media quite a bit, so we want to use social media. We want to use technology, all types of different surveys and, and, and ways to move people towards consensus on many issues. Uh, there will always be uh, great ideas uh, that don't necessarily make it into the plan, uh, but what we, what we haven't done a great job of is cataloging them. Mm-hmm. Um, somebody may have a great idea for what should happen on, you know, some public piece of property and, uh, some, they may pass it to me or some other official, mm-hmm. uh, but the public never knows that that idea even exists. Mm-hmm. So we want to find a way to present those ideas to the public so the consensus can be gained. Uh, we want to use as many face-to-face opportunities as we can, not the traditional, uh, we're going to have a meeting at 6 o'clock at this location, please come and tell us what you think. We will do some of that, mm-hmm. uh, but that can't be the extent of our engagement because that's convenient for us. We need to think about our customers. Our customers are the people of this city, and we need to figure out ways to make it easy for them to give their input. So if they have an idea that strikes them at 3 o'clock in the morning, where can they deposit Mm -hmm. that into this process? Mm -hmm. So all of those are things that we're thinking about uh, throughout this this early stage. Um, We, you talked about the follow-through on the backside. Mm -hmm. Um, There's every intention to have this plan adopted Mm. Um, and uh, after adoption, we want to make sure that as the plan is crafted, that as I mentioned earlier, that there are clear, definitive roles for all of the different actors. Uh, there won't just be a role for government to play. There'll be a role for the nonprofit sector to play, for the private sector to play, and for individuals to play in their communities. We have to make sure that people have clearly delineated opportunities to make this change come about and that everybody feels ownership in this process. We want people to feel like this is not business as usual for city government. We're not just coming out and asking for your input just to check the box and then go do what we want to do anyway. We want this plan to truly reflect what people ask for in their communities. Um, so, you know, it's it's definitely going to be a difficult process. I'm excited about the opportunity and the challenge. I'm really excited for uh, the team that's going to be leading it, the comprehensive planning team. Um, and, you know, it's not going to be just HCD and 
division of planning and development and even just the comprehensive planning team, it's going to be citywide. So all mm-hmm. of the divisions of city government, all of the agencies that touch our communities, we're going to be working with Shelby County and the health department and our economic development agencies and uh, parks and engineering, all these groups that touch a community, even our local utility, mm-hmm. all of these groups are going to be at the table. And that's one of the things that we haven't necessarily done as well as we probably could is um, we rarely get all of the actors that have a role to play in our neighborhoods on the same page at the same time. We all have our own individual um, goals and Mm -hmm. our strategic plans and things of that nature, but we, we don't necessarily have this umbrella that we can all feed up to, and that's what this gives us an opportunity to do. Maybe we should have named the podcast Silo Nerds. <laughs> Just saying. So is there a city like that you look at that has done a comprehensive planning process in an innovative way that has best practices? Yeah, there are, there are, there are a couple of cities that have, have done um, good comprehensive planning. In fact, Nashville just finished a, a, a comprehensive planning mm-hmm. uh, initiative, and we're using all of those. I think Denver did mm-hmm. one recently as well. We're using all of those as models. Right. But we want this to be a Memphis plan. Mm-hmm. This is going to be our opportunity to define ourselves. And so uh, while we'll rely on um, y- using you know, expert advice from outsiders and looking at uh, other plans as models, we want our citizens to really chart our course. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's – I mean I think that's – Memphis is special. We are special. We are. Built by Memphians. Yep. I was just in Seattle recently for a conference, and Seattle has a pretty robust like planning department. So they've had a comprehensive plan for some time. Um, they do a lot with it. I mean, it's a it's a it's a tough place to sort of you know try to develop new opportunities. It's it's constrained by water. You know, <clears throat> transportation is a huge deal mm-hmm. there. They have like the largest. Maybe one of the largest like public transportation bus systems in the country. Really, I didn't um, realize that. Yeah, yeah, well, massive, massive, man. And I was, I actually was talking with some of their planners, and they've just implemented this new like equity measure um, okay. that incorporates um, an understanding of where investment should be happening on a yearly basis and within the context of their long term planning. Uh, based on neighborhoods that have been historically disinvested, mm-hmm. based mm-hmm. on minority populations, incomes, mm-hmm. uh, racial and ethnicity profiles, in every single decision-making process in their annual like capital budget, right. and in terms of how funding gets allocated, now goes through this super robust um, equity like equity matrix. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's 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 really interesting, and they've gotten their whole like council bought in on it. Mm-hmm. And so they're actually prioritizing making investments in neighborhoods that historically haven't gotten those kinds of investments. That's awesome. And, and they're one of the first cities that really sort of have taken a look at this as a, as a whole. I think it's called GARE. I it's an acronym, like G-A-R-E. What does it stand I have, for, I don't, Kyle? Re- I don't remember. <laughs> um, but the Center for Social Inclusion helped them yeah. uh, sort of you know, prepare this thing. I, I, was, I was really impressed yeah. by how comprehensive it actually was. That, that sounds awesome. And, you know, as a city, we're having a lot of conversations about ways that we can ensure that equity is included in the fabric of all of our work. Mm-hmm. Um, and so tools like that will definitely be helpful moving forward. I'm a part of a team. Actually, next week we're going to Dallas for this Equitable Economic Development um, mm. Fellowship Program where six cities have been identified to 
come up with different programs and initiatives that demonstrate equity in our economic development program. And it's something that uh, our Mayor Strickland is very serious about and I'm serious about. And I think our whole administration is really trying to figure out how to uh, address equity in a real way, and meaning putting our financial resources behind it, whether it's minority contracting or figuring out how we utilize our CIP dollars on an annual basis. So that's definitely an awesome. I would love to find out a little bit more about yeah. that. How do you see Memphis, like in your perfect world, how would Memphis define equity? Because it, it can go larger than, than I think we – I traditionally try to break myself out of the right. thinking of it just by race or income, but there are other things. Yeah, in. I think about equity as just fairness um, mm-hmm. and how can we fairly, uh, you know, I don't know what our GDP is as right. a city, but how do, we fairly, how do we fairly distribute that and how do we make sure that everybody sees uh, the benefit of, you know, if we have a capital budget of, Eighty, hundred million dollars each year. How do we make sure that that's uh, spread out in a fair way? Um, and I think the, the the easiest way to think about it for me is just fairness. And, and and when you think about all of the needs, when you drive around our communities and our neighborhoods, uh, something needs to be done about right. the way our communities look, just from an aesthetic perspective, yep. uh, because that dictates where investment is going to be mm-hmm. made from the private sector. And if we can't um, get our neighborhoods to the point where private sector investment happens in a uh, natural way, then those communities will continue to struggle. And so what investments can we make in those neighborhoods that will really push them over the edge so that the private market can become active? That's the way I like to think about all of our investments is uh, how can we uh, incent the private market to act. Once the private market is active, then the private market will do what it needs to do and, and people will be taken care of. Now, what you want to do in that instance is make sure that gentrification doesn't happen. But in Memphis, that, that hadn't been an issue yet. I'm, I'm concerned that that could be an issue mm-hmm. in the next five years with some of the great projects that mm-hmm. we have underway, whether it's downtown, whether it's where we are now in right. Crosstown. How do we ensure that moving forward that uh, housing is affordable and the people that really give us the – the culture and vibrancy that we have in our neighborhoods uh, are able to stay there um, because that is one of the things that no other city can say they have over the city of Memphis. Yeah, agreed. You can't you can't recreate the the identity that we have because of our people, uh, whether it's the artists, the music, the 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 vibe that you feel, the realness, the grit mm-hmm. and grind, which kind of gets played out, but it's real. It's 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 the best way to, to define how it feels when you come to this town. You just feel that energy, and we want to make sure that we keep that. How do we keep it, Paul? We keep the people in the neighborhoods. Yeah. We, we 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 make sure that as growth happens and as we have this this renaissance that I would say is happening mm-hmm. right now, that. Affordable housing is a part of the equation. Mm-hmm. You have to ensure that people uh, that give you that that vibrancy and that energy can can afford it. Right. And so you do that by uh, Nashville has gone as far as um, saying that any uh, development that receives an entitlement from the city must include a certain percentage of affordable housing, um, and we need to. You know, look at things like that. And while, like I said, we're not necessarily there yet where gentrification is a real problem, 
Um, but it could be. And so when we look at projects like South City, which is a major redevelopment of uh, Foot Homes uh, project, which is on the southern southeastern side of downtown, 400 units of public housing, which will be demolished in the next couple of months. We are rebuilding 712 units of housing. 480 of those units will be eligible for individuals um, that are currently in public housing. Mm -hmm. And so we're actually creating more affordable housing than currently exists today. South City will also have a bunch of other assets as well connected to the development. We're looking at um, a a high-quality early childhood center. Uh, we are uh, doing some blight elimination. And, and if you look at that area, it's an area that uh, has clearly been um, pulled down over the years. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's seen disinvestment. And it's literally, you can throw a rock from the FedEx Forum and hit yep. um, hit the, the buildings there. And uh, it's so close to wealth and investment that it's a shame that it has not been able to bleed over Mm -hmm. into that community and and deeper into South Memphis. And we feel like by changing the aesthetics, by uh, creating a new mixed-income community, uh, that we will be able to encourage growth in that area. And the private market, as I mentioned earlier, will begin uh, to be active. But as it activates, we have to make sure that you have – enough affordable housing to ensure that the people that have given you that that uh, that energy uh in this city are able to stay. Yeah. It's their yeah, their neighborhood. Yeah. So I have a couple subjects that oh, oftentimes oh are no 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 I I I I've never heard, I don't like that. I don't like the word I've come, subjects. I've come prepared. <laughs> I've come prepared, right? I thought about this the whole plane ride. Uh, right, to Memphis. Right. Uh, I have a couple subjects that oftentimes are used um, as a defense against bicycling advocates by neighborhoods and communities as reasons why bicycling shouldn't be a part of their daily life. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious. I, I want to sort of throw a couple of them out there and ask that you – you know, our the work that Sarah and I do, and the people that we talk with, right, is 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 about encouraging bike advocates to not just be solely bike advocates; that they're actually community advocates, and that to be effective at bike advocacy, you also have to be an advocate for the community, regardless right. of what that community needs. Right. And so, I, I'm I'm hoping that I can sort of throw a couple of these out there, and that you could offer suggestions on ways in which within a planning within within planning. Okay. How could but what could bike advocates advocate for um, that would help address some of these needs? So yeah, that, so that I'm hard. well, <laughs> I think I think you've got. I mean, I'll, I'm going to throw a softball because you already uh, you already threw it right. So residential displacement, affordable housing. What are the mechanisms within planning that bike advocates, as a part of a planning process, could say we want we want A, B, and C to address affordable housing within our neighborhood? Hmm. I, I mean, what I would say doesn't it doesn't matter whether it's coming from a bike advocate or anybody yeah, else yeah, yeah. in yeah. the community. I, I think um, the the example I gave of inclusion of policies for any uh, incentive from the public sector for development should could include uh, some set aside for affordable housing. Mm-hmm. So if you're going to be uh, getting a pilot, for instance, yeah. um, then you should. Uh, have a set aside for a certain percentage of affordable housing. Now, that already exists in our pilot mm-hmm. program, but if there are other incentives that are being used that come from public from the public sector, 
then that should definitely be uh, something that those residents should see. I mean, mm-hmm. th- that those advocates should uh, ask for, rather. Um, I don't know that I have another um, good one. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I think that will be the okay. primary one. No, that's good. That's softball. Next so bike, ad- bike yeah. advocates facing issues of gentrification and affordability could also be advocating through a comprehensive planning process that there be legal requirements when public assistance is involved that affordable housing be, yeah, be a requirement. Yeah, interviewing you. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's I, I'm, just sum- I'm summarizing yeah. the, the, great, that, the great work. Isn't like the larger summary that like, and this is a conversation Kyle and I have a lot, that like bike advocates, I think in a perfect world, are really just advocates for a city, yep. right? Yeah. Yeah. That there happens to be a sweet spot around biking and walking and transit, but that it connects to all of the things right. that, that you just as, you're an advocate. Yeah. I, I, I think, I think what we try to sort of communicate is that being a, a quote unquote bike advocate um, in as, as sort of an individual identity uh, isn't, isn't serving well to yeah. your community or to yourself right. or to the work that you're trying to do. There, there's a, there's a, there's a limit. There's a plateau at which you'll reach in terms of being a bike advocate mm-hmm. and that bike advocates across the country actually have to sort of expand their thinking to becoming this sort of, you know, more community driven yeah, city builders to I be, mean, to be effective. Yeah. Are, they're, yeah. They're essentially city builders. And I and think I, if you take that into consideration, you look at all of the other issues that are impacted uh, uh, and you obviously you, you all know this, and mm-hmm. as well as the advocates, but this is a core part of our transportation system. And as we look at at our city's growth, and <clears throat> not necessarily in Memphis, we hadn't seen dramatic growth, mm-hmm. but other cities across the country are experiencing it, and I hopefully we will too. But as we grow, we have to include other ways for people to get around, aside from yep. getting in a car and yep. driving and parking somewhere. We have to think outside that box. And I know that, you know, some people deal with issues with transportation, getting kids to and from, and that's a different challenge. But having bicycles as a means of transportation helps us address poverty, uh, which is, you know, if we, if, if, if anybody asked me the one problem that I want to solve in Memphis, mm-hmm. I think if we solve poverty, we solve you know, seven or eight other mm-hmm. problems that yep. we have in this city mm-hmm. uh, from crime to education to health and all these other issues. And with uh, if you can provide a means for people to get to and from work uh, and have a, a low impact on the environment, then we're, we're killing a lot of birds with, with mm-hmm. that stone. And so that's what I think the importance of bicycle advocacy is, is that you are advocating for various means of transportation. Nobody's saying you can't use your car. Mm-hmm. That would be silly. <laughs> but uh, what we are saying is that people should have a choice. People should have options. And when we talk about people that are living in uh, conditions where, you know, they may only have one car and mm-hmm. maybe the one car is being used to take kids to and from and the other adult is able to ride to work on a bicycle and get to their job in a in a efficient manner. Uh, all of those things are just so interconnected that I think as an advocate, it, it's, I won't say easy, but I think it's it's incumbent upon the advocate to Talk about those things so that you're not seen as somebody that's 
coming to the public meeting just talking about the Greenway and the trail and how beautiful it's going to be, but you're really talking about an issue that uh, resonates with all segments of the population. And I think to your point, the choices piece is so important. I have stolen this from Kyle, but um, I think you don't have to identify just as a bike rider or just as a car driver or just as a transit user. Like You can identify as like a person that has all of these options to get around town. Um, And I think Another thing we talk around, I think the bike advocacy silo that you get in is that biking is the only option, mm-hmm. and it actually isn't. And you can drive your car to work one day and bike to work one day or bike and car and right. Uber and take the bus one day. I mean, there's all these choices right. that are available, and I think it's changing the conversation that it's choices. You, right. know, you don't have to identify as one and the public is is going to demand it. Yep. And, you know, we have all these conversations about economic development and how we want to bring jobs and we want growth. You want the millennials to come to your, your city. Well, if you want millennials, then you have to give them that choice. Millennials yep. demand that they have the option to Uber to work, to walk to work, to bike to work. Like those things are non-negotiable. And, um, you know, many, many studies and articles have shown that, People are now saying, all right, I'm just picking a place on the map. I want to yep. go to Memphis. And they'll come to Memphis before they even find exactly, a job. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I re- recently at a slow ride event that I'm doing with the Memphis Beth- Memphis Medical District Collaborative and the Downtown Memphis Commission met a boomer. So, like, he's, he's like, retiring. He's, like, I, like, picked Memphis on a map because right. it had a low cost of living. I Great. knew it had culture. I knew there was all of these opportunities. And I just moved to Memphis. And now I'm, like, navigating around and figuring out, like, what all the options are. Right. Um, and I thought that was, like, really refreshing to hear that the kind of the other side of the millennials is people who are retiring or – Absolutely. Looking at different kind of job opportunities as they get older. And Memphis was where he chose to move. Yeah. And great cities have options. Yep. I mean, that's what it comes down to. Any great city that we think of, you have multiple yep. options to get around. And, and we want to be no different. Do you have another what's your subject? Next subject? Yeah, what's your next subject? Kyle? My next subject. This one's hard, so oh. I'm just going to warn you. You can ask it, and I can just say I don't know. So, well, I think that's fine, and <laughs> I, I think I think that might. I, be- I think that's fine. I think Paul can say whatever <laughs> that he wants yeah. as our guest. I think that might be a legitimate answer for this <laughs> one, but I, I'm curious to know if you know comprehensive planning has mechanisms to address. Um, street safety and i don't just mean that in terms of vehicular crashes or bike and pedestrian crashes and fatalities that occur but also you know the uh the safety costs of being a person of color walking down the street um you know the institutional violence that sort of exists throughout the country right you know how do how do we address that are are there is is that is that a is that a function of planning to sort of think about you know, uh, people feeling safe in their neighborhoods. I think it's. I, I think it's absolutely going to be the number one thing that we talk about during this comprehensive planning process is public safety. Um, it's a topic of, of of high interest in the city of Memphis and nationwide, really, uh, on, on many mm-hmm. different fronts. I think that there are ways you can do crime prevention through environmental design. All of the SEPTED conversations that uh, are happening where you design things in a way that it makes criminal activity more difficult Mm -hmm. uh, to take place by ensuring that lighting and and different um, the lines of sight are 
appropriate so that mm-hmm. uh, people can actually have more eyes on the streets, uh, which has been proven to reduce crime. So I do think that there are things that you can do through uh, the planning process. I think the organization of neighborhoods is going to be very, very important uh, to addressing crime. Uh, I think just just having people having those conversations on a regular basis and, and getting to know their neighbors and 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 having those leaders that bubble up through this process that that are engaged and they come to these meetings and say, all right, look, I'm going to organize my neighborhood. We're going to start a block club or Mm -hmm. neighborhood watch. All of those things, I think, can result as a result of the process. Um, So I do think that it it has an an impact on crime. Mm -hmm. I don't know that uh, there will be um, a ton of of specific strategies uh, that will be geared towards um, – crime prevention but i don't know i don't know what will what will happen in the plan but i do know that there will be a lot of uh tangential benefits as a result of the process yeah yeah it's a tough subject right it is, and, and it's you know and it's may, maybe it's not sort of fully uh, a function of planning it feels like it feels like planning sort of long term is probably like a preventative measure within within some of that rather than a direct um, countermeasure to things that are happening. You don't see planning as a countermeasure? I mean, I think it certainly could be, but... What would that look like? I mean, I think it is. I think it is somewhat (laughs) of a countermeasure. I think you, you, you definitely take all of these different things into consideration through the planning process and you... Uh, you come up with a set of strategies and ideas, and while the plan is primarily focused on the built environment, there's you you have no choice but to think about how people interact with that mm-hmm. environment. Right, right. And so, um, I think that there could uh, be recommendations that uh, that uh, speak to um, other agencies like the you know Memphis and Shelby County mm-hmm. Crime Commission, where they may take this issue of crime and go much, much deeper than we go in the comprehensive plan, but it can be referred to in the comp plan to you know get us to that point um, to get the crime commission to do mm-hmm. deeper exploration on whatever that issue is right. so I think there's there's definitely uh, some cross cutting connectivity, uh, but I just don't think that well, I don't know if the comprehensive plan is going to be the venue for the 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 depth of the conversation that we need to have around crime. Yeah, but I do know that it's going to be the first thing that people say in our neighborhood meetings because certainly we've already yeah. had a few conversations, and um, there was one uh, person that was there who reiterated on numerous times that her pr- primary concern was addressing the criminal behavior in her neighborhood and can't blame her. I mean, this is the place where she lives. And so that's part of the beauty of getting all of these different groups in the room, because if we're having that conversation and she says, I live and this is the intersection where the activity is happening, we're going to have police officers in the room that can say, all right, well, let me write that down and let's send somebody over to, to go and try to address that issue. So, you know, it's an opportunity to have conversations that, you know, you may have every couple of months when the, the you know the town hall meeting takes mm-hmm. place and you bring everybody in. That's going to happen on a much more regular basis now. And so it gives people an opportunity to to voice the things that are happening in their neighborhood. I was going to ask one more subject about I was going to throw out public transportation, but I want to skip it because I because we're running out of time and I want to ask um, a slightly different question. All right. So. Switching gears. Oh, 
you, you said it, not me. That's that's our like. Such uh, a gear, it's yeah. our pun. It's our pun, pun that, that we banned that from we, the podcast. But we both still like use. It. Like every it. Day. Yeah, it's hard <laughs> not to use. It really is tough. It was the name of my master's uh, capstone. I didn't know that. Nice. Yep. Shifting gears. Oh my god! Uh, shifting gears, not switching. Yeah. Go shifting. on. Sorry. Thanks. Shifting is a better a better bike <laughs> a bike pun. Um, so I'm curious to know. As I think about sort of the comprehensive nature of planning and, you know, it's it's fundamentally at its root in understanding that city and civic life and public space is all intermingled. You know, you, you referred to this sort of, you know, it's parks and public safety and transportation and housing sort of all working together. And that that's what a city is. It's all of right. those systems working together. I'm curious, you know, on your thoughts then about – the nature of funding within cities because funding is not actually a comprehensive sort of uh, source. If you think about how cities receive funding from the federal government, for instance, right? Mm-hmm. Those, those funds come down for very specific activities. Right. Uh, they don't, they don't, they're, the funding itself is siloed even beyond sort of the silos that exist within yeah. cities. I, we had, we, I had this conversation with some parks officials um, from the National Parks Association recently uh, talking about, you know, why, why aren't we, why aren't we quite connecting the world of parks and recreation to transportation where, where parks serve in many capacities as central hubs to move pedestrians and bicycles. Mm-hmm. But why aren't parks officials sort of talking about that? And their response was simply, well, Parks and recreation money is for parks and recreation, right. and transportation money is for transportation, and uh, they they don't they don't intermingle. The right. transportation department is not going to give us some of their funding to build a better place in a park. Yeah, right. um, you know, so how how do we sort of address that? Even you know, even if we had the most comprehensive plan that was the sort of dissolved you know this this world of silos in the most utopian kind of place, how do we think about? actually implementing that given yeah. that you know we're unlikely to change how state federal and local right. funding sources are sort right. of derived from that yeah that's that's a man that's a million dollar question probably <laughs> multi-million dollar question <laughs> but um i think it's uh, incumbent upon the locals to make it happen it's not going to happen at the federal level because mm-hmm. they can't there's no i mean they can talk to the, the hood secretary can talk to the dot secretary and they've done that sure in fact the green print was an effort for uh epa dot and hood to right, work together right. uh to do that but it's incumbent upon the local groups to put those funding sources together and that's why i think the comp plan is is so important is because we're now going to be having that conversation across sectors. So mm-hmm. when we get into the neighborhood, the director of parks is going to be able to hear what the priorities are, and we can use our collective brain power to figure out the best ways to fund the opportunities that, that present themselves. So I don't think there's a way to do it other than at the local level. We have to figure out ways for the locals to drive uh, what's going to happen in our communities. We can't rely on the feds to know that um, we need to connect our, uh, we need to connect Overton Park with this uh, new transportation uh, resource mm-hmm. because we're uh, taking the green line down Broad Avenue and creating the hemp line and trying to figure out how to get downtown. Like we can't rely on them to do that. So we have to um, chart our path and, and tell them what we want. Uh, yeah. Because what I found is that most of the, uh, um, federal officials are receptive uh, to those types of things when we have those, that dialogue, but we have to tell them. Yeah. 
I, I, I think that's, you know, it's, it's one of those factors that becomes, uh, it becomes confusing, right, to the public no, in terms, hey, we said we wanted this, uh, and you're doing this. And your your answer is like, well, our funding source doesn't allow us to do right. everything that you had. It's, I think, yeah, it's just one of those. Uh, it's definitely frustrating, and and you know, as somebody that has to stand in front of the community often and talk about mm-hmm. why we're prioritizing this prioritizing this project over another project, mm-hmm. and explaining that this one has federal funding, this one is funded by CIP dollars, mm-hmm. which can't go into private <laughs> development, and you know, all of these yeah. different pots can be confusing, but it's it is confusing. Upon, yeah, it's it's incumbent. I but upon us to do it though we have to explain it and <laughs> make sure people know uh is this going to lead to a participatory budgeting <laughs> that's, that's, my, that's my loaded question that's my loaded question for the night i don't know who, who knows what the future what it, what it will lead to though is uh more um insight on our more um strategic planning behind our capital improvement budgeting process. Uh, Right now what happens is the most um, pressing needs end up driving what happens in our CIP budget. And what we ultimately want to get to is using our comprehensive planning process as a means for (laughs) determining what uh, priorities we put into our CIP budget, what gets funded. Uh, each year and you know we're still going to have those pressing mm-hmm. pressing needs we have you know we got to spend x amount on radios for the police this year and it's nothing we can do about it we got to spend it right um so that'll still happen but at least now we will have a a, a formal means for determining what the priorities in each of our communities are going to be it seems so simple right <laughs> <It does. laughs> i mean to 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 think that uh, you know, Memphis is not alone in terms of the communities that haven't updated their comp plans in right. 30 years. No, we're definitely not alone. To, to, I mean, to think yeah. to think that what on in its very core seems a very common sense and uh, rational thing to do in terms of decision making right. uh, is not being done across you know the country right. as a whole. Um, it's kind of mind boggling sometimes, particularly when you put it the way that you do. I can understand. <laughs> it can definitely be mind boggling, but you know, it's, it's one of those things where, uh, we've, we've kind of made do over the last 20 years, mm-hmm. uh, without a comp plan. And now we want to, uh, really think pro progressively and be proactive about how we go out, procure input from the community to design what we want to be uh, moving forward. So I'm excited about what's to come. Um, I'm just a minor player in what's going to take place, yeah. but I'm glad to be a part of it. Well, I'm excited to uh, to see what happens uh, from afar. I'm excited to see what happens from close very by. close. Yeah. <laughs> we hope to have you very involved. <laughs> Thanks for thanks for joining us again. Thanks for having. It's really it's yeah, really it's great for fantastic. you to take time out of your Friday night to yeah. uh, hang out with us just for a little bit. Anytime, man. Thank you. Awesome. We'll take thanks. you up on right. that. The Bike Nerds Podcast is a joint production of the Bike Nerds, Sarah and Kyle, and the OAM Network, based in Memphis, Tennessee. For more information, visit theoamnetwork.com/slash the Bike Nerds. Want to nerd out more? Find us on the web at thebikenerdspodcast.com, on Twitter at the Bike Nerds, and on Facebook, the Bike Nerds Podcast. Drop us a note or recommend another bike nerd to have on the show by sending us an email at thebikenerdspodcast at gmail.com. 